Welcome to Erds in Equilibrium, a podcast where we discuss recent papers in energy and environmental economics. Erds in Equilibrium is a joint initiative of the Canadian Association for Energy Economics and the IV Energy Policy Management Centre. My name is Brandon Scheifley. I'm an Associate Professor of Business, Economics and Public Policy at the IV Business School and Director of IV's Energy Centre. Today, my guest is Stephen Snudden. Stephen is an Assistant Professor in the Department of Economics at Wilfrid Laurier University. Prior to moving to Wilfrid Laurier, Stephen spent several years at the Bank of Canada, where his research focused on developing applied macroeconomic models for policy analysis. Stephen and I discussed his paper, The New Benchmark for Forecasts of the Real Price of Crude Oil. This research is co-authored with Amour Anis Ben Moussa and Reinhard L. Weiner. Stephen, welcome to Urgent Equilibrium. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Brandon. It's uh, great to be here. So forecasting is critical for many areas of the energy business. Firms want to know what the future cost of inputs will be, traders trying to eliminate price differentials across markets, and policymakers need to understand how future prices will influence a range of outcomes. Your paper is about forecasting price of oil. Can you provide a bit of big picture context for this research? Uh, Sure. So really what... uh motivated this research is we realized uh, that there was a very serious mistake, a methodologic mistake that was being made in the uh, forecast literature for all real aggregated variables. Okay. And uh, so that's the, the real big picture. There's this fundamental big mistake going on. And the reason we decided to focus on oil is really twofold. The first is oil is really important. It's an important source of energy. Uh, you know, represents maybe four to six percent of global GDP. Uh, fluctuations in the price of oil have large transfers, uh, induce large wealth transfers across country and regions. Um, and you know, it's incredibly important for uh, macroeconomic forecasting, like you said, at the central bank. One of the reasons stated right now why the bank Canada didn't react sooner to inflation was because of its oil forecast. Uh, the second thing is, is there's actually a very large literature on oil price forecasting, which the consensus is that oil prices, the real price of crude oil, is actually different than that of an asset price in that it's forecastable. Uh, and they, the literature is, you know, dozens of papers, uh, you know, in, in top journals, and they are able to find up to 25% gains in forecast accuracy. Uh, you know, relative to an average price, no change forecast at the one month ahead, right? So this is a very, very substantial, uh, you know, suggests a very high degree of forecast uh, accuracy. And it was really surprising uh, because, you know, a lot of people think that since oil is traded on a, on the market, that it should be close to an asset price. And here, this literature is very large. Uh, you know, there's papers written every year in sort of this horse race on applying the latest forecast model and and trying to get beat the produce a better forecast. And so when you talk about aggregating real variables, you just mean averaging, correct? That's right. Yeah. So temporal aggregation uh, refers to, well, it refers to just aggregation. Okay. So this could just be, you know, the the monthly sum of daily oil production, or it could be uh, a monthly average of daily closing prices. Uh, And that's exactly, uh, for example, when the EIA, the Energy Information Administration in the US, publishes its monthly nominal uh, crude oil prices, this is just a 
uh, a monthly average of daily closing prices. And so that is a temporary aggregated series. So one of the seminal papers you guys highlight in your manuscript is this Working 1960 paper. Can you provide a high level overview of what Working is trying to convey? Sure. So uh, Working 1960 paper was, uh, like you said, a seminal paper. And, and what it showed is a very simple idea that has pretty profound implications, which is that if you take a series that is unpredictable, such as like a random walk, uh, and you aggregate it in any way, right? Um, say just average over two days or take the monthly average of daily closing prices, um, you convert a random walk into an ARIMA model, okay? And that what that means is that even if you have data that is completely unpredictable, as soon as you temporarily aggregate the data, it becomes predictable by construction, right? Um, now, this, for example, holds for asset prices. So if we observe, say, daily asset prices and we aggregate to the monthly frequency, that automatically becomes predictable by construction. And we can get spurious predictability, which is we, we've taken a series that's completely unpredictable, then we aggregated it, forecast it, and now we actually expect it to outperform the monthly average no change forecast. Um, so under like the null hypothesis really uh, that we're trying to test against is that the aggregated data is unpredictable, but that is actually expected if the underlying data is actually unpredictable. And so in finance, um, they took this quite seriously and they said, uh, okay, when we are forecasting um, future values, we have to point sample the data. So we say, okay, we're interested in the uh, returns next month. So they have they will use the end of month return or some sort of point sampled return, and this is to completely avoid uh, spurious predictability. Um, and it's completely standard practice in in the financial literature and including um, you know forecasts of say real end of month values. Right now the problem is is in macroeconomics and and many other um, forecast applications. We're actually really interested in in not. A point in the future. Like we're not interested, for example, uh, in the price of crude oil on December 31st next year. You know, uh, we are interested in the average price over the entire next year, right? So whether this is me, uh, you know, deciding between an electric car and a gasoline vehicle or uh, whether or not to um, install a, a rig that's going to last for a long time um, or for, say, monetary policy, which typically operates at a quarterly uh, frequency. They're interested in, in the next quarter's average prices. And what happened in the literature is that um, it wasn't clear what to do when we actually are interested in forecasting averages. So the practice that came out was, well, when we forecast the average, there's really nothing we can do. We just have to compare against the average price, no change forecast. And so the real insight of this paper is that you guys can actually do better by using a price that isn't the average from the preceding temporal period, whether that's a month or a quarter. And so what is the, the novel contribution that you guys bring to the literature? Yeah. So uh, it basically comes down to the fact that even if we are interested in forecasting a future average value, under the null hypothesis that the the underlying data is unpredictable. 
or it follows a random walk. The, we can prove, and that's what we've done in the paper, is that the optimal forecast of all future prices, averaged or not, is the last observed price. So in the context of the real price of crude oil, whether you're forecasting tomorrow's price, the next month average price, next quarter, the next yearly average price, if you want to test against the null hypothesis of no predictability, that is, you know, the reject the random walk model, you have to compare against the last observed price, which is the closing price on the last trading day of the month, right? So, um, so as an economist, this makes perfect sense, and it's exactly not what I do. You know, if we think about being, you know, prices incorporating all information, the last price is going to have more information than an average price. You know, that is what we would expect. And yet, you know, my practice would have been to use the average price. And so it's one of these really clever, intuitive changes that I, I really like. I really like this result because, you know, it maps to way, the way we think about markets working. Um, I'm also going to give away the punchline of the paper here, just, just at the outset. The paper says, when, you, when the underlying series follows a random walk, the theoretical improvements in a one-step-ahead mean square prediction error which is just this, no change forecast, are larger than 45% when using the last observed value instead of the monthly or quarterly average value. That's a big change. You know, we're learning a lot, or maybe say this differently, we're throwing out a lot of information by using the average versus that last day. So I really want to walk through how this, what seems to be a relatively minor change, comes about. So we already know that crude oil is a major market and that forecasting crude oil prices is critical to macroeconomics, it's critical to traders, it's critical to investment. Can you describe how the loss of information occurs through averaging? Because you've already mentioned that you guys have this theoretical result. Um, and then to add on how this actually impacts forecasting methodology? Yeah, absolutely. So it turns out, there's a profound uh, difference between an average price and the last observed uh, daily price. Um, so theoretically, if we are, are converting, say, daily data to monthly data, we would expect 45% improvements in the one month ahead uh, forecast accuracy. So this is absolutely substantial, right? I mean, the absolute largest value that the literature has ever found at the one step ahead is 25%, okay? And this is a 45% improvement, which means that a substantial amount of information is being thrown away through averaging. And let's just think about this from like uh, maybe an intuitive perspective. So if we believe financial markets are really efficient, then all the latest information that's available to traders is priced in in the last price, right? All the available information that's available at the end of the month should be reflected in the closing price at the end of the month. And then what we do though, is then we average over the last say 20 trading days and we destroy all that recent information in the price, right? All that information that's in that price, we just dilute it with all the old information that's reflected in the old prices. And so at the one step ahead, the forecast accuracy, both in terms of the mean squared prediction error and also directional accuracy, um, 
there's like 40% information loss just by averaging over 45%, 40, 45%. Um, the other thing is, is that this loss of information is persists over different forecast horizons. So in a typical forecast uh, sample that people are considering, say over 20 years, um, the we get statistically better forecasts even up to one year ahead, right? So this isn't just about the one month ahead or the one step ahead. This is all forecasts, even up to one year ahead, are significantly better by using the last observed uh, closing price relative to the last monthly average price. And what this means is that we've substantially increased the benchmark, the bar, for um, a forecaster to claim that a particular model is useful, right? This all comes down to, is our forecast useful? That's why we compare it against uh, the random walk, the null of no predictability. And what we've literally done here is increase the bar by 50% in terms of now your model has to be twice as good as it was before. And so in addition to your theoretical results, you guys actually empirically test this and you run through a number of standard oil price forecasting models. Now you focus on the WTI price, but your analysis is robust to others, other prices as well. And so which period of WTI are you guys looking at in the paper empirically? Yeah, so we can use uh, WTI or, or Brent uh, from when it was observed observed at, at the daily frequency, uh, which is around in, in 1983. Um, and so uh, we do focus on WTI. We extend the results to Brent. And, um, and again, those are reported by the EIA as a, a monthly average of daily closing prices. And then we also, in the paper, look at the uh, US refiners acquisition cost of crude oil, um, which is actually just reported as a monthly value. Um, and it's the monthly it's the monthly average cost of, of refiners. And we basically show that even by uh, just interpolating some end of month value using WTI, you can still get these substantial 40 plus percent improvements in directional accuracy. So in addition to the no change forecast, you also see this loss of information when you build forecasting models. Can you walk us through that? So you're absolutely right there is a substantial loss of information when forecasting. And this doesn't just apply to the no change forecast. This applies to all models estimated with aggregated data, uh, which has been the standard practice in the literature. We estimate our models using monthly average prices, and then we compare against the average price no change. And it turns out that, you know, there's a very, uh, there's literatures out there that use this disaggregated data uh, to improve forecast accuracy, right? And what this means is that we can also use disaggregated forecast methods to improve our model-based forecasts, but we've also increased the benchmark, right? So ex ante, we don't actually know which conclusions will still hold, right? Because we can improve the forecast accuracy of our models but we also improve the and benchmark, right? And so there's a number of consensuses in the literature, for example, that say futures aren't particularly useful or that futures are useful, 
uh, or that crude oil prices are forecastable, and we actually have to go back now and retest the conclusions doing replications uh, because we actually have to do the replications and do the tests uh, against the end of month no change forecast because what we thought we were testing against, we weren't. We thought we were testing against the null no predictability. Turns out we weren't. And so you guys proceed to do some of these replications and some of these tests. Do you want to describe some of the tests you do and how you, you know, set up your empirical analysis? Right, absolutely. So I think about the, let's come back to the title of the paper, which is the new benchmark, right? So the, the main point of this paper uh, was that the forecast, the benchmark that we need to compare all forecasts against is the end of month don't change forecast, right? I mean, the, the new benchmark is not some new model that I'm proposing to throw into the horse race. It's really pointing out that the benchmark and the, the, the test we thought we were doing uh, wasn't the correct test. And we weren't actually testing what we thought we were doing. Um, so I basically spent the last two years replicating just about every single paper in this literature, uh, basically to find out that there's pretty much no love for replications. Um, and so, uh, but what we, one thing that we did do uh, is we basically surveyed every single paper in the literature. Okay, so we had 14 papers that were looking at forecasts of real aggregated data. And we took their one month ahead forecast, right? So we took the, their absolute best one step ahead mean squared prediction error, one step ahead success ratio. And we went back and just said, what does the end of month no change forecast look like it, for that sample, for their assumptions that they made, you know, whether it was real time data or ex post data. And we found that not a single paper in that literature that concluded that their models were able to outperform the no change forecast even came close to the forecast accuracy from the end of month no change, right? So the absolute best forecast in the literature at the one step ahead is a 25% improvement. And the equivalence for the no change uh, end of month no change forecast is a 45% improvement. Okay, so um, basically all the conclusions of that literature on the usefulness of those models at short horizons uh, were incorrect. They were not testing what they thought they were testing against. Okay, so that pretty much overturns sort of the consensus of the usefulness of those models as proposed uh, at the short run horizon and questions whether or not the real price of crude oil is actually forecastable. Okay. And then the other thing we have to do is if we want to say, we want to test whether or not those models are actually useful at shorter horizons, not just the one month ahead, we actually need to go back and do the replications and run the tests uh, to be able to say, well, are they useful at three months? Are these useful at six months? Are these useful one year ahead, for example? Um, and so what we did is we, we basically replicated all the, the models in the literature. Uh, so this includes uh, some just basic Fox Jenkins models, uh, like a REMA and autoregressive models. It also includes uh, vector autoregression models, models that are um, of the global market for crude oil. So they include prices and supply and inventories and demand, um, both Bayesian and classically estimated. Uh, and then we also look at futures and then combination forecasts. Um, and then 
what we also do is uh, look at a number of uh, disaggregated approaches and uh, also um, suggest ways that we can take these pre-existing methods and apply disaggregated methods to those models to Im improve forecast accuracy. So I find this fascinating. You know, it's the idea that when we actually take theory seriously when we're doing empirics, we get very different results than when we don't take it seriously. What do we actually find when you use the last observed observation versus this temporally aggregated observation? Yeah, so it's it's pretty amazing because it basically changes everything. Um, so like I said, when we surveyed, we found that none of those models were useful as proposed. When we ran the replications of those models as they were proposed, none of them were useful even up to one year ahead. Uh, well, I should say nine months ahead. Um, and so it really challenges the consensus in this literature. Um, and one, for example, one of the consensus is, is that future prices aren't particularly useful forecasters of crude oil prices. And this was actually one of the reasons why so much attention has been placed on model-based forecasts. Because in contrast, those had rather incorrectly uh, been able, were able to show them to be uh, useful uh, in terms of uh, producing short-run uh, accuracy improvements over the monthly average, no change. But when we go back and looked at futures, and we just used the end of month futures curve to construct the forecast rather than a monthly average uh, futures price to construct the forecast, then it turns out that futures have had held substantial amounts of information of, of future crude oil prices. And in terms of uh, like one month ahead, they can uh, improve our forecast accuracy by about 45% relative to a monthly average no change. And not only that, but they've actually become incredibly useful at the one, uh, at longer horizons. So horizons between nine months and, and 12 months ahead, regardless of the way uh, that you can construct the forecast. Um, and then we also extended it because uh, Recently, uh, futures markets have also have uh, horizons beyond two years now. So we were able to look up at up to five years ahead. Uh, and it turns out at longer horizons, future prices are incredibly useful, um, like 80% uh, accuracy in terms of directional accuracy and 70% and, and improvements in the, like, the mean squared prediction error. Um, so, you know, just by... Uh, so futures was like the one, the one forecast that we actually found was able to outperform the end of month no change forecast. Um, and it is especially useful at horizons of interest to policymakers and investors, right? Like, uh, you know, when I buy a car, I don't really care about the, my, the price next quarter. I care about, you know, over the next 10 years, right? Monetary policy, you know, we think there's a leg. Uh, so we care really about what's going to happen six to 18 quarters uh, in the future. Um, so that was, that was a pretty surprising result that we found uh, with, with futures. 
So I think this is really important, both from a policy perspective and just from a practical perspective. You know, if we think about what a futures curve is, it's supposed to provide information about the future state of the market. And it's supposed to provide incentives for people to make trades on that information. And if it actually is an accurate reflection on the state of the market, then that is a very useful tool. And so historically, I've always thought about the futures curve as providing a very good long-run prediction, but terrible short-run predictions. And what your results tell us is that, well, it turns out they actually provide pretty good predictions all along that curve, both in the short and the long run, as long as we do the test against the appropriate benchmark. Is that an accurate assessment? Yes. So uh, with a caveat. So absolutely, the one thing you want to do when constructing these forecasts is don't throw away information, right? So we have to use the last observed futures curve um, and not average over any historical values. And when we do that, we do find that at the three year ahead and beyond, they've always been incredibly useful at uh, prediction. They, and one reason is because um, futures are actually do reflect some mean reversion that we actually do see in the real world, right? The real price of oil, people have argued, is sort of stationary and, and has, you know, converges back to some, say, long-run mean. Um, in the short horizon, the there has been some variation in the usefulness of, of the futures market and predicting prices. So, um, when we had the consistent run-up in crude oil prices in the 2000s, the futures market didn't predict that very well, right? And so um, there was a bunch of papers, for example, in the early 2000s that said futures are really useful. And then we had this bad sort of forecast in the futures market when prices kept increasing unexpectedly. Um, and then they became sort of useful again uh, after the financial crisis. Um, and so in particular, the last 10 years of the futures market has uh, you know, exhibited an incredible degree of robustness in terms of, of, of uh, forecast accuracy. So, um, and that also coincides with like a tripling of um, the quantity and, and volume of uh, futures markets. So in the sort of financialization question, how important have, has, um, you know, deepening of these futures market been? If anything, this just suggests that it, we've been getting better information from the futures market because of this financialization. And so you guys find these results, not just for WTI, but you find they're robust across a number of metrics. Do you want to speak to the Brent prices that you've already mentioned in some of your other robustness results? Yeah, so the, uh, the result, the baseline results we looked at were WTI, but they hold equally for Brent um, and uh, it very similar uh, to a very similar degree. Now, the interesting thing here is about the refiner's acquisition costs because we don't actually observe the temporarily disaggregated data. We don't observe the daily data for refiner's acquisition costs. Um, but one thing that the literature has done is basically used WTI prices to now cast the refiner's acquisition costs. And so we do a very similar thing. We say, okay, let's use the information in the WTI market and apply that to the refiner's acquisition costs. And we impute a 
quasi end of month uh, observation based on the growth rate between end of month and monthly average WTI prices. And then we can also uh, apply the spreads that we see in the futures market to the refiner's acquisition costs. And when we do that, um, again, we see these enormous improvements in, in forecast accuracy and find that you know, their um, futures markets are also useful um, even when we don't exactly, we don't have a financial market for that particular uh, asset. And this also kind of leads into this idea that even when we don't observe this temporarily disaggregated data, just by even approximating it, we can achieve substantial improvements in forecast accuracy. And I think this has a lot of uh, insights for other macroeconomic variables that we're interested in forecasting. So what are some extensions that we can think about for these types of models using disaggregated data? Yeah, so coming back to the model-based forecast. So it, it's actually really interesting. So in the 70s and 80s, there was a pretty sizable, uh, well, there's a number of papers written basically showing that you should never, ever estimate a model with averaged data, right? And this, like, I mean, it was a lot of focus on this was for the Box Jenkins applications and also for um, VAR models, right? And it's amazing that like, basically the entire literature sort of missed that completely, right? So what we did is, you know, if you think about um, just a simple ARIMA model, Box Jenkins forecast, we can actually estimate the model on daily prices and then ex post average the forecast to the monthly horizon and then test the accuracy. And it turns out that the it reduces the forecast error by like 40%, right? Just doing that alone, which means, you know, just doing a simple Box Jenkins bottom up approach, right? Forecast the daily average and average that bottom up forecast to a monthly average. Um, we could have done better than anything that had been seen in the literature prior to my papers, right? What's interesting about that though, is that they still don't improve upon the random walk, no change forecast. That is the monthly end of month, no change forecast. So there's a number uh, of approaches that we've also looked at, including extending, we have our own uh, disaggregated approach, which we propose called period end price sampling or PEPS. Uh, and basically this is uh, similar to the bottom up approach, but you maintain the lower frequencies. So say if, you're, if you have a monthly VAR model or monthly uh, autoregressive model, you just replace the average prices with the end of month price. And this is the reason is because basically all the information is contained at the end of the month price. And uh, we, we see uh, substantial improvements in forecast accuracy. So if we just re-estimate a ARIMA model, let's say, with monthly uh, end of month real prices, that's what we find is actually the best forecast model. Uh, and we do find that that model can improve uh, in terms of directional accuracy, uh, even at some short horizons. Um, the other thing that we can do is apply this period end price sampling approach to VAR models, right? And one of the nice thing about that methodology is that like say at the central bank, the models are estimated at a quarterly frequency because you know, GDP is quarterly and all these variables are observed at lower frequency. 
but we can still achieve these enormous forecast gains just by replacing the variables that we do observe at the disaggregated frequencies and just use the end of period values for that. So the end of month real prices or the end of month real exchange rates. And we could like double the forecast accuracy of our policy models. So when we apply that to VAR models, we find very similar things. We can like double forecast accuracy. And, but even then, we, we still don't find improvements on uh, relative to the end of month, no change forecast. Um, so those, those are, you know, and this is whether it's Bayesian estimation or classical estimation. But we also, one of the literatures that used disaggregated information uh, recently was the mixed, mixed uh, frequency approaches, the MIDAS approaches. And um, so we look at direct forecasts using uh, MIDAS data and or using the MIDAS approach. And we also use direct forecasts using the period and price sampling approach. Um, and again, we find that these are very uh, similar to sort of using the box Jenkins the, from the bottom up approach or using the PEPs. Uh, they achieve very high degrees of uh, forecast precision. But again, uh, except for some directional accuracy at short horizons, it's not able to improve upon the end of month, no change. So in this way, it turns out our forecasts are very similar to what we would expect from forecasts for asset prices, right? In that sense, even when we do observe our models outperforming the end of month, no change, it's like two, three, four percent improvements, right? And they're rarely statistically significant. Um, and in fact, what we did is we went through the entire literature, we replicated the papers and all the methods and extended them using this disaggregated methods. Not only do we find that we get substantial improvements in forecast accuracy, but we've only ever found one case, one model that can actually significantly prove upon the end of month going change forecast at the one month ahead. Um, and so this was using just um, end of month uh, returns in the uh, in a oil sector index, right? And so when we did that, we found uh, significant improvements that were like close to four or five percent. And you know, this, again, this is sort of similar to the asset price literature, where sometimes we can forecast that asset prices at the short horizons, you know, but it's small, right? And it's rare, and they generally don't last very long, you know, it's period specific. And and so in that way, all of this work doing these replications and extensions uh, basically suggests to us that you know, at the very least, crude oil prices are much, much closer to asset prices than what we had initially um, had assumed. So has any research come out uh, on this methodology or on forecasting oil prices since your paper was first released? Yes. Um, so we, it turns out that that first paper uh, had way too much in it. <laughs> and we needed to do a lot more um, you know, the implications were, were pretty big. We had to redo an entire literature, right? And so what we've done is we've we've taken that original benchmark paper, the new benchmark for the forecast of crude oil, and we've turned it into four papers. So we have a paper where we just look at future the futures market 
and the ability of futures to forecast. Um, we do a real deep dive into that. And that came out in, in the Energy Journal, uh, or is accepted, it's coming out next year. Um, we did, we sort of abandoned the replications that we were doing and just gave the proofs and showed that every, we, so we wrote another paper called Carpe Diem Seize the Day, where we kind of make the argument that uh, the end of month no change forecast is the optimal no change forecast. That is the, the test that would reflect the null of no predictability. And then we surveyed all the, the entire literature and showed that none of them even came close. Uh, none of their conclusions were correct and that they never came close to being able to reject the null of no predictability. Uh, and so that just got a minor R&R at the Journal Banking and Finance. Um, and then we have a big replication and extension of all the models in the literature uh, paper, which, um, sorry, that, that's the paper that's called Carpe Diem Sees the Day. Uh, yeah, and so that's making its rounds right now. Uh, and then we, we took the uh, period in price sampling methodology and separated that out too in a, into a separate paper. Um, and uh, yeah, we're trying to do a, more of a deep dive into each one of these uh, contributions that we saw. What's next? What are you guys going to do in the future using this methodology? Right. So all of the, the work that we talked about today was about uh, crude oil prices. But this is true of all energy prices, right? Whether you're interested in forecasting like gasoline or electricity prices, you name it, natural gas, anything. And not only that, but it's also true of all aggregated data that we've been forecasting. So it really has implications for all literatures, including real effective exchange rates, right? That are only observed at the monthly frequency, let's say. Um, and so I have a project with a team at the IMF where we're actually uh, constructing daily real effective exchange rates. Uh, and actually, so for the first time, we can actually test whether or not real exchange rates are predictable. Um, coming back to energy, we've applied this to gasoline and it turns out gasoline prices are actually pretty predictable. Um, and you know, I think there's what's amazing about these sort of insights is that this isn't just about oil. Every literature is affected by this. That we're using these uh, mistakes, right? So I don't know. Maybe you have a PhD student who's looking for an application. I mean, pick a literature. You know, all the conclusions need to be reevaluated. Uh, and now, so I think there's a lot of exciting research to, to going forward. So I would agree, you know, it's one of those developments where it just becomes standard practice. Instead of using an average value, you use the last observed value within a period. My guest today has been Stephen Snudden. Stephen, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Ergs and Equilibrium podcast. For more information, you can visit ergsandequilibrium.ca. For any questions or comments, you can email bshifley at ivy.ca. That's B-S-C-H-A-U-F-E-L-E -E at ivy.ca. Have a great day.